This right. is an eight iron, and it's a dead shank. Wow. Way right. Oh, Takes a hop off the path. You gotta be kidding me. Very tough pitch shot right here. You gotta hit it into the hill. One hop up and bite, and it's in. Kind of like that. Well, I would like to uh, welcome retired Navy SEAL Commander Jack Riggins to the Sub-70 Podcast. Uh, Jack, thanks so much for joining us today. I've been looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm As you know, I'm an avid golfer, and I, I love talking all things golf. I love playing it more, but yeah, really excited to be your guest today. Yeah, no worries. Um, getting into golf a little bit, but uh, the first thing I know is, uh, speaking of golf, uh, you have a golf injury a little bit. You had to have a hip replacement. Uh, how are you feeling, and uh, what's the prognosis for getting you back on the golf course? Uh, hope everything's going well with it. Yeah, I appreciate it. Uh, yeah, we're six days out of surgery. It's actually a dual hip replacement, so I went for the full enchilada um, I wouldn't say it was caused by golf. It was probably more caused by uh, Navy SEALisms and chasing bad guys around the world and just the wear and tear of that life. Um, but I, but I can say golf is uh, <laughs> golf certainly exacerbated some of those injuries just due to the nature of of twisting and turning, you know, that occurs in your hip joints. Um, and as fate would have it, you know, the kind of the final straw was, you know, going down probably on a simple nine iron swing. And, and then I was like, okay, it's, it's time. So, so yeah, we got it done. It went well. I'm glad to be home. I think this is my 15th or 16th surgery, you know, since I've been 20 years old and uh, wife and kids are over it, but uh, the dog still loves me. And uh, the prognosis I hope is uh, six to eight weeks. Back to fully playing at that. It's crazy of how good that technology is anymore. That double hip replacement, two months you could be playing again. Like the the technology that's changed in the last twenty years to give guys mobility, pain free lifestyle. It's pretty insane of how much better it's gotten. And you know your golf game should get better, right? More mobility, more flexibility. You got to be, you know, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. You got to be a little bit excited too of what's to come that uh, you might take it to the next level potentially. Well, I, I would be. I would be lying if I said that I, I I didn't think that, that I would be able to play a little bit better. Um, there's no doubt about it. I mean, I the injuries, these type injuries that I have are very common in SEAL team and, and all the special operators throughout the world if you do it for a long time. And so, you know, we, we keep up to date on technology and, and surgical procedures because, you know, if we're on active service, we're just trying to get back in the fight. So you, you're you looking for the best surgeon, the best technique. And then if you're, you know, if you like jujitsu, you follow those guys. In my case, I like golf. So we were always following. And I can remember like uh, Tom Watson getting one, um, uh, Jack Nicholas, and, and you'd kind of get some rave reviews. Peter Jacobson. You'd find out what type they got, how it was done. And, and I just remember the first time they discussed it with me it was actually 15 years ago. And back then they could only go in through the backside. And, and part of that was cutting all of your big muscles um, in, your, in your butt. And as we all know, like that's an important muscle for golf. It's an important muscle for everything. Um, but that recovery was so long but yet I, I watch golfers come back from it. When they've been able to kind of master the anterior approach, 
which I had done, where they just kind of separate your muscles so they don't cut anything. It's kind of like switching out tires on your car. Like once the joint's in, it's working, and you just need to let it heal up. And then, you you know, obviously there's going to be less pain, better rotation. You know, in my case, you know, touch your toes. Just do a lot of things uh, that you couldn't do because over time that's what these type injuries do. So, yeah, as far as just lifestyle and especially golf being a big part of mine, I'm very excited about it because I've seen tons of people not only in SEAL team but in professional sports come back. And and I think the statistics do say that, you know, hip uh, prosthetics is, is the most successful prosthetics they do. I'm going to ask you, too, about uh, hosting a podcast since you're on a podcast. You host a podcast called The Dark Side of Elite. And how did that podcast come about? What sort of uh, the topics that you like talking about? And what have you sort of learned uh, as you've gone along and interviewing people? And, you know, how how enjoyable has it been for you? And how has that process worked for you and, uh, you know, what you do for for your own podcast? Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, So The Dark Side of Elite. Um, yeah, it's my own podcast. I mean, darksideofelite.com and we've got some other, um, fun things on there, you know, blogs and, and premium access to other content that, that feeds into that, um, brand of the dark side of elite. But it, it came from as I, as I've grown through my career in SEAL team and, and gotten older and, and I was a big sports guy, small sports, um, growing up here in Nebraska I just always realized that, you know, what we think of elite or what we think of teams, you know, is always one thing. And then when you're inside of them, and I've been part of so many, you know, it's a little bit different. It's all, it can be, frankly, it's a lot different than what the perception is out there. And I've always noticed in anything that we as a public say is elite, there's always this other side to it, and it's always fascinated me. Um, and, you know, so I would just give it some thought. I, you know, obviously in SEAL Team, we had to work through those issues with individuals or the group if, if quote-unquote, bad things came up. Um, so it just became something that I was very passionate about. And then in my own journey, not just with injuries, because you could say that, you know, injuries in my case were a um, – a price to pay for being a a Navy SEAL commander for 20 years. Um, Very common, but it's a price. Um, And then in my case, you know, addiction to uh, opioids and alcohol, um, you know, while those were personal choices, um, they nonetheless were a dark side to some of that. And while I had a fantastic career, I certainly made it harder on myself. And then, you know, if you extrapolate that out to, you know, the family unit, um, and again, I have a wife and four beautiful kids, and they've been with me the whole time. I mean, that takes its toll, not just the job, but that type of behavior. Um, Yet, by all measures, um, I'm a successful person, and I am, and I'm happy, um, but there's a cost to it. And so, you know, because this is a golf podcast, I mean, I think it's very telling You know, the Tiger Woods saga. You know, there is this other story that always is out there. And I just felt in our society, especially in the male part of our society, that we don't talk about it enough open and honestly. And that a lot of us suffer from it um, on different levels, whether it's mental health, whether it's anger, whether it's personal relationships. 
And I just felt that if I had any platform, and I don't know if I do, but I am obviously I realized that Navy SEAL uh, people respond to that, and and we have a very unique experience in the modern society. That if I was going to have a platform, you know, I wanted to share, hopefully, with people how to give them hope and the struggles that I've went through that can help them be a better version of themselves. Um, and I, I do that in lots of different ways. That's kind of my post-service passion, right, is to just be open and honest about the trials and tribulations and the good times and the bad. And hopefully someone will hear that and go, you know what, I, I can beat this opioid addiction or, you know, I can work to get through my depression um, because there is a dark side to all of this. And, and I think it applies in every sector everywhere. And I also think, like I said before, I think we don't attack it as much as we should. It's much better today. Uh, you see a lot of athletes talking about some of it. Um, and I think one day, I, at least personally, I would be very interested for Tiger Woods to kind of tell the whole story and and how he made it back to be a good father and, and all of that type stuff and the golf. But it would never be appropriate in a competitive environment to give that whole story right now, right? I mean, you just yeah, you got to wait on that one until he's but 60, I mean, it, 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 right? It is a it is a phenomenal comeback for any of us like me who have struggled with like issues. Forget the golf part of it. I'm telling you, the comeback to sanity and humanity it, it's like one in a million. I mean, it's. It's more improbable than what he did in golf. I'm dead serious. And that doesn't mean that Tiger's like super special. It just meant he accepted the challenge to make himself better. And and that's what I had to do. And that's what a lot of people have to do um, with this. And so this dynamic is a lot of the things that drive people to be elite. It's like a razor's edge. If they get a little off track – I mean, it can spin completely out of control. And I would just like to uh, make it more common and, and make it more accessible for people to understand they're not alone in that and that, you know, together we, we can we can work through those issues. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, from watching like the Chicago Bulls documentary that everyone, at least in the Midwest, is kind of watching now on, yeah. uh, on that. And then Jordan talking about like you're a prisoner of like who wouldn't want to be Michael Jordan? You think that on the front end, right? Like greatest – athlete potentially ever fame fortune championships can't leave his hotel room in those documentaries right like you're kind of a prisoner of it like god i don't know if i'd want that. right where you're just there is a you know like you said you, th- you don't think of the downside that it would be that just trying to go to dinner would just be a half disaster not that being michael jordan would be terrible but boy there is a price there is a price oh. for that and you kind of see that through the documentary i thought it's really fascinating too that they kind of show the the non-glamorous part of it. Um, well, and there's a price at so many different levels for things like that. And, you know, what I do is I bring on my guests and they kind of know that that's the theme. Um, but if if they don't want to go there, that's fine. I mean, we basically are a random podcast. We'll talk about anything. But interesting enough, a lot of people have come on. And been very open and honest um, from rape survivors to child abuse survivors um, to addicts um, or just people struggling, heck, with COVID. Um, and I think that's important. And I think it's important to hear it from a, a, uh, a vast demographic of people 
heck from all over the world because we've had guests from all over um, and not just our sports stars. I mean, here in America, we just we love to route everything through our sports stars and, and there's nothing wrong with that. But the reality is there's a, a way, 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 way more people dealing with these issues than to just those folks. And then they have, you know, a unique set of challenges, just like political people have a unique set of challenges. So, um, yeah, so it's just something I'm passionate about. And, uh, and it's a way I, I, I honestly, I, I, I just want to help make the world a better place one person at a time. And I felt it was a good topic, a topic that I was comfortable talking about and using my platform. And so far it's been great. I mean, we've had guests from pro sports, uh, college sports, college, you know, coaches, all the way down to, you know, local plumber here in, in Nebraska. I was going to ask you about your military uh, career as well. When you were growing up, was that something that you always wanted? In, and it could have been in uh, SEAL or Delta Force or something like that, but some elite um, military operation, or did that kind of just manifest itself by joining the military? Was that something that was always on your mind of something you wanted to achieve? Yeah, I mean, I think it, there was a stronger than most um, undercurrent just in my family. Um, you know, my grandma and grandpas on both sides had served in World War II, and so those stories were kind of around. And then um, I, I didn't have a – my first father passed away, and then I had a really abusive second father, not for too long, but enough to know what that means – and then my third father, the one that raised me, was a former vet himself of the Vietnam, Korean Vietnam Wars. Um, and so it was always there. You know, it's just like if you're part of a military family, you can't escape it because the conversations around things. And uh, my stepbrother uh, was quite a bit older than me. And he was an Army helicopter pilot. So, you know, went to those graduations, saw him. And, you know, he had a lot of manuals he brought home. And so I'd read those. So I was always interested in it. And in my little neighborhood, I mean, we played a lot of, you know, we called it war, you know, with our pop guns. And then eventually we'd shoot BBs at each other. And eventually, <laughs> yeah. you know, we, we'd go hunting. Um, and so definitely by 15 or 16, I knew I wanted to be in the service. Um, I also correlated the service with a sports team. And, um, and so then, you know, in early high school, I started researching, you know, different services and units. And I, I started to know that I probably wanted to be in some kind of special forces, um, and all the services have them, but, um, and, and why? Well, because everything you read and research said that they were the best of the best and the ultimate teams. And, you know, like a lot of young athletes, at some point I realized that, you know, there would be a time where I wouldn't get to put on a, a uniform and play for somebody. And like most, it would be sooner than I would want. Um, but I was able to go to college and, and play two years of small college football, and it, it was great. I didn't necessarily handle it the best, but it was a great learning experience, and I enjoyed the playing. Um but I was really just looking for the next locker room, and I knew by about 16 that it would be in the service. And, you know, maybe from 16 to 19, I settled on SEAL Team because it had the coolest poster. How does that work? <laughs> so you got the poster, and then you joined the Navy. And then can you apply for SEAL 
school per se, or how does that selection? It doesn't have to be more or less from a generic asking this question standpoint. Yeah, like, I mean, there's, there's, everyone wants to be a SEAL, but you, you know, is there a pre-qualifier? Like, how does that work to even be a candidate potentially for it? Yeah, I mean, there's two tracks. The the, the one track that most people generally think of, right, is is a kid graduates from high school or college and enlists in the Navy. And and those folks, you know, just like uh, enlisting in the Army or the Air Force and the Marine Corps, you know, they're the majority of the force. Those are what we call the men, the guys. Um, and, and they by far, numbers-wise, are the forces. Um, and so, yeah, that's into your local recruiter. And then for any kind of specialized job, SEAL team, you know, advanced, you know, cryptologist, whatever, you have to pass certain tests um, to be qualified. And then in something like SEAL team, it's obviously a, a higher standard of physical qualification. And and then from there you apply, you know, assuming your medical is good, um, you apply. And, um, and if you're slotted that these days, you know, you go to boot camp. We have what's called SEAL motivators, and, and they uh, physically prepare those candidates while they're at regular Navy boot camp uh, more. And then when that's done, they come to uh, BUDS, Basic Underwater Demolition SEAL School, or our selection. And, and then that's where we uh, try to weed them out and, and hone them to be the next generation of Navy SEALs. And so – you know, that's the most common way. Then the way I went was through college and the Naval ROTC, which is producing the officers of, of the United States Navy. So kind of, uh, you know, the United States Naval Academy uh, at a regular school. So the academy guys do it 24-7. You know, I did it, you know, every Thursday. And uh, you take special classes and you learn all the basic military stuff and uh, they paid for my school. And ROTC is a, a great way to become a, a, an officer in the military. And so those are throughout every university. And just like our enlisted counterparts, you know, once you get towards the end, you know, there's a competitive process based on grades and physical fitness um, to select your top three jobs that you would like to do in the Navy. And, you know, Along that pathway, they introduce you to all the jobs an officer can have in the Navy. The SEAL one is a kind of pre-selection, and so you go to that for a month uh, prior to your senior year, get a taste of it, and then you come back and you fill it out, and uh, you you wait four to six months, and it's very nerve-wracking of whether you're going to get a chance. And I was lucky enough to get a chance. And from that point, as soon as you graduate and you're commissioned in the United States Navy, they send you out to San Diego and you meet all those guys I talked about from boot camp and you all go through uh, SEAL selection buds together. And and I always say, to me, it's harder, more nerve-wracking to get there than it is once you're there. Because once you're there, it's really easy. Just don't quit. Is the stuff that you see in the movies – is it pretty accurate of the difficulty it takes, the mental fortitude? I, mean, I'm, I, mean, I know it takes a ton of mental fortitude, but is it even more difficult than what the general perception is to make it through that gauntlet to become a Navy SEAL or any of the elite, elite guys in the military? Is it unimaginable for most people of what that training uh, physically, mentally, what it takes to get to that other side and, and be included in that fraternity? Well, I think... You know, my perception on 
the way it's been captured, you know, over the years and movies and books and, and all of that, you know, uh, even the ones that the Navy has sponsored, like with Discovery Channel, is it does a good job showing some of it, right? Some of it. Um, but oftentimes it, it either way overplays something or way underplays something. It, it, it never can get the perfect gray area. And, and, and that's because you have to be there 24 seven and something on celluloid cannot show you the, the internal feelings of one candidate or every candidate or the blood and guts things that are going on. And so it misses a huge part of the psychology that is, is actually taking place when we film those things. Sometimes it's captured, you know, in, in a movie or something for just a small bit. Um, but nothing's been able to accurately portray it. In my opinion, um, it's either way over the top or, or way underwhelming. And, and so that gives it a kind of, uh, for those of us that have been there, just kind of like this, uh, oh, God. Um, but, you know, to your question of, yeah, I I do think that to Joe Public, the whole thing would be completely mind-boggling and overwhelming. And, and why do I say that? Well, because we have 10,000 roughly candidates a year. We weed that down to 1,000 that we let come, and we get about, 200. So the best thousand candidates in the United States Navy, you know, only 20% of those can handle. So, and, right. and, and those, those people had to work really hard to get to that thousand. Right. I mean, you know what I mean? Like, right. it's like a- from the time I started my dream, you know, it was five years before I was, you know, at the actual place, you know, that for the next year was going to make or break me. And, and so there's just, and some of the methods and things, I, I think people would just, yeah, they'd implode because they do. I mean, the best candidates I've, I've watched it. I mean, I've had my mistakes and, and, and the thing that makes SEAL team wonderful, and it's probably why I'm so attracted to golf, uh, because it's kind of a singular sport is that it is all about the teams. Like no one person makes it through our training or our career because they're some superhero. We make it because we're great team guys. We we make it because we understand leadership, followership, and communication, and you know accepting you know a role for whatever time the team needs us to do that role, and then switch if 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 need be. Like there's not a lot of bitching and complaining. It's all about what what does the team have to accomplish and and let's go do it and who's the best guy to do this and that and then you know something happens and we adjust and and so you you get these you get an animal that is comfortable doing whatever the group needs them to do and and obviously for the greater mission and and that is exactly what we train for at seal training. Um, there's a lot of physical and mental games that are played um, to find those candidates that can be that flexible. And there's just honestly not a lot of them. And so, yeah, it, it's I, I wish there was a way. And, and people always ask me, you know, if I'm working with a sports team, 
like I don't do the like little boot camp things and and things like that. Um, but I, you know, I've I've done some fun little exercises to kind of show people, um, and they can never don't. They always ask me. They go, "Well, I didn't realize it was that simple," and I was like, "Oh yeah, think about it. We use a beach, an ocean, some logs." And that's about it. It's as Spartan as it gets to select the best special operators in the world. And it's simple. And do you know why? Because it's very hard for people to be great at simple things. Yet, simple things, right, are what we know works under pressure. And simple things mastered is what makes champions. So when you talk to elite athletes or golfers – that's what they're chasing every day, and that's what we have to chase in SEAL Team every day, and we just have the fortitude to find the enjoyment of trying to perfect a very simple task over and over and over so it'll hold up under pressure, right? And that bores most people. Let's be honest. So you retire, you know, you're playing golf, and you fall in love with golf, and then how did that transpire, and then... It's kind of a two-part question because I also want to talk to you about Performance Mountain, which is your consulting company. And then how, how do you then take that skill set that you had in the military and then apply it to your clients and then also apply it to what you love today as a, as a sport that you, I know you love golf and have a huge passion for it? Then how does that then carry into your professional life with who you're working with now? And then how does that grid or determination fall into golf and how much you love golf? Like, how do you put those pieces of the puzzle together to get the most out of your professional life of what you do now and then with your passion of golf? Like, how does that come full circle? Wow. Like, that was like a paragraph of questions. Yeah, I'm trying to ask <laughs> it. There, you know, like, you have all this great training. And then how do you apply? Because you can't take probably everything you did in the military. Cause you said you can't, you can't do consulting and put people in boot camps and, right. you, you know, you can't do it that intense, right? But then how do you take that to where you're living at now and take those things that you're so passionate about and use that training to help even yourself play, you know, golf as good as you can? And I know it's sure. a sport you want to excel at. And then taking it to the corporate world or the other team settings, it's almost like a two-part question, but how does that background influence how you work with other people today potentially? And then what do you kind of learn? And we're going to get into golf here in a second. How do you take that training to get the most out of your performance of a sport that you love right now so much. If I'm trying to ask that yeah. the right way. Yeah. I'm maybe probably over asking flow. it. But. We can flow. I mean, it, when it comes to, you know, what did I take away from SEAL Team, you know, after 20 years in that organization and, and all of that? Number one, you know, team first, right? So does that directly apply to golf? Uh, maybe, maybe not. We'll talk about that. But, you know, Technical and tactical proficiency is a must, right? But then, as we always say, you know, every SEAL will understand shoot, move, communicate. And as I always say, shoot, move, communicate, communicate, communicate. So what your most elite special operators are, get rid of the muscles, get rid of that, is their ultimate team players, and they communicate within their group at a phenomenally high level, right, with not a lot of ego, just facts and communication on what needs to be done and what needs to be fixed in order to accomplish the next objective. 
and then an obsessive pursuit of the basics. So we always go back in SEAL Team to the basics, to the basics. And and everybody else thinks we're out there doing all these high-speed, complicated things, and we do. But the preparation that goes into that is an obsessive pursuit of the basics. All of us, the most seasoned special operator, when we restart a team, we go back to the basics and we all cover them, and, and it's just – this cycle. And so I started, you know, obviously you start to love that process, if you will. And, and when I started, you know, in my own golf journey, which, you know, I started to kind of, my dad taught me to play a little bit when I was young, but I did, I didn't have the mind for it and, and just get my ass kicked by all the real golfers, you know, growing up. Um, so I started to kind of take the game seriously uh, when I got done with college football and really started training for the SEAL thing uh, at the University of Nebraska. And it's kind of funny because there's a golf course out here and a lot of the college golfers here go over there to get some extra practice in. <laughs> and I always go, oh, yeah, I used to go there. And like I had to decide between buying, you know, a pitcher of beer or, you know, getting 15 range balls. And, uh, you know, I'd go over there and self-taught the game. But what I enjoyed was – this really difficult to master sport that was all on me and it had so many variables, but you know, how to figure it out, you know, to get to my own level of proficiency. And so I, I, I felt this synergy between the two. And at the same time, I was learning to swim at an elite level, run at an elite level, you know, be in a physical shape for a seal at an elite level. And so then, you know, put, kind of put that on pause and, and go through SEAL training. And then when you get in the, the teams, I mean, you meet other guys. And, of course, there were golfers, you know. There were guys that loved it. And, and from there, the competitive nature of just all of us trying to figure out golf, you know, just basically led to matches. And, and we had a pretty good group of guys where golf was our thing outside of SEAL team. And I think that's also very common. I mean, you have guys that are into parachuting, into shooting, into jujitsu. Seals are into something always, and and not just partially, like all in. And I was all in on golf and still am. But that helped feed it. And so as we would go, you know, I would learn things at the job, like say with pistol shooting. I would learn about self-talk and performance words to help me shoot my pistol better. And then, you know, I'd be out putting and I'm trying some other technique and, and I'm thinking to myself, wait a minute, like I have this one mastered over here. Like, why don't I just use that same flow putting stroke? Oh, boom, problem solved. Like I still use it today, right? And I was like, oh, that's weird. Like that trans transfers over, um, you know, positive self-talk, like routine. Um, you know, there is a routine to shooting. There is a routine to the golf swing and, and all those things. And so I just started looking at those in my own game. And eventually, right as I got older, um, you know, I started to get asked to consult with some sports teams. And and on a broader level, there were a lot of things that carried over from SEAL team as far as structure, leadership, handling personalities, Um where basically, as I like to say, we were cross-talking. You know, we were doing peer-peer, how do you do this, best practices. And I did that with a lot of sports teams and, and found synergy there. And 
you know, in the end of the day, you know, my original partner, uh, co-founder, Dr. Larry Widman, we said, well, let's take this to a broader audience than just the sports teams. And, you know, we added Danny Woodhead. We have Lauren Cook, a volleyball player, professional volleyball player. And so, you know, it kind of came out of SEAL Team, came out of sports. And we said, let's take these philosophies to the masses. And we still work with sports teams because every time you work with one, you learn new things. You, you keep your sword sharp. Um, yes, that's the right term, sword sharp. Um, and, you, you know, there's been a few golfers here and there. Um, but you find that these philosophies are kind of international and apply everywhere because what are they really? They're human dynamics and they go on with everybody. And so, yeah, so we, that's, you know, that's why we started performance mountain and it continues to grow. And we've, um, you know, we've got into business as well. And, um, but what we're really talking about is people. And so, you know, to end on the seal thing a little bit is that's what I took away those things. And then it's all about the people. And so, especially in group dynamics. And, you know, when it comes to golf, the truth is it's it's all about the person, and, you know, people. And so, you know, we talk to ourselves in our head all the time, but it's like, how do we talk to ourselves? What do we think of ourselves, you know? And, and so golf for me has just been this phenomenal journey that will continue that is both competitive but also fun um, and has so many internal storylines just in one person's single golf. And most of us enjoy chasing it because it's so hard. Why do you think that is? Because there are that that golf is so difficult, and so many people need help on the mental side of of that sport, right? I mean, there's most touring pros have some version of a, a mental coach or something like that. You don't hear that on every sport like you kind of do with golf. From from playing golf. And understand this stuff. Why do you think golf specifically is just, you know, it can be a mental torture chamber for people at times who love the game, and that's what we love about. But what do you think the dynamic about golf is that kind of having maybe an edge on the mental side of stuff does make such a difference in this game? Yeah, I, I actually, I, I mean, I agree with you completely. I mean, I think at all levels of golf, um, a mental edge is a huge advantage, and it. It gives you more of an advantage than in a lot of other sports where maybe physical dominance can can completely overcome, say, uh, a great mental edge or uh, strategic edge, you know, in game planning. Um, but golf doesn't seem to always elude itself to that. And, you know, one, I, I think the attraction for most people is, number one, it's fun. You're outside. Um you know, at worst, you get to walk with some buddies and talk, and, and that kinship is great. Um, but as we break it down to actually trying to learn the game and play it, you know, it's impossible, whether it's the first day you started or it's, you know, 10 years later, you know, whenever you get done, you you, you think about what you could have done better, what you did do good, and then the next day – you know, you, you come back and, and every day you're like, I improved or I didn't. I mean, we all think that. It, it's a weird game like that. Like, I played a lot of sports and I never recall, like, after all those games having this. I mean, you know, you think about a throw you missed or something, but you're kind of like, okay, got to go work on this. But golf, we're like immediately like, I got better. 
and if you are just getting new to the game, you're kind of like you you have uh, you have a bigger wealth of I got better today, I got better today, and then you know as you start to stabilize, you know finding that get better or get worse, you know gets harder because the better you get, the harder it is to improve it golf. Right. And so there's there's just this chase um, that is very individual, yet we all go through it. And I think there is some kind of addictive quality to golf. I, I also think that it drives most people nuts that a ball that doesn't move can be so hard to master, you know, and score. You know, because think almost every other sport is dynamic in some nature. Where reactionary, a lot of things, right? Reactionary, right? Just right. see the baseball hit it. Right. There's not, a, there's not this time in between a lot of these right. things that happen on in a baseball game, right? right. Pitches coming, you got to react. Yeah, but the truth is, what's funny? Not only we know golf can be a reactionary game, right? But that that has that has to take time to train and learn that, and that comes in your mind, not in your mechanical part of it, right? Um, but yet it lends itself to, well, it's static. It's not reactionary. Uh, I mean, I get that, but a lot of that is in our minds. And so when we talk about, you know, trying to apply mental skills, which we teach, right, they're very basic, but oftentimes if you ask people if they're applying them, you know, the answer is no, not at all. Never even thought about that. Um, and sometimes you want to be like, well, why? If you want to get better, you can. I mean, I am 100% convinced what Ben Hogan wrote, which is everybody can learn a repetitive golf swing on an average course to shoot under 80. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I'm not talking about 7,200 yards. I'm just talking wherever you play. You can learn to do that, you know, but it takes time and it takes work. And one of the biggest advantages you can give yourself is to have the right mindset to do that. So what would the, let's uh, so the season is upon us, right? And, and yeah. everyone kind of has like, all right, this is the year. I'm, I agree with you. Like golfers are always, for the most part, optimistic, especially when the season starts. We're not like, oh, it's going to go to shit in a handbasket here. Like, why am yeah. I doing? No, everyone thinks like, forty-seven years old. I think I'm going to play great this year. Start of the year, right? You always have that mindset. <laughs> so we're optimistic right now, right? What are a couple, two or three things? that you observe that most of us could learn from your background that we should apply to golf to let us play as good as we can play. Yeah, that's great. I mean, the first one, everybody's going to go, duh, Jack, you know, but it's a set a goal and, you know, very specific in, in, in your goal setting for what you want to accomplish for the season. And I would say that, you know, I would go season and, and I would go month by month. Um, and whether that's, you know, putting or, you know, more drivers in play or scoring. But, you know, we have to set goals. It's very difficult for us as human beings to really accomplish anything unless we chart out a way to do it. And the first way we do that is just by setting those goals. And and let's be honest. I mean, this is part of the mental side of it because, you know, generally – the way you think about performance in anything is is like a chair, and it you know it, there's there's mental elements, there's physical, there's technical, and there's tactical. Um, and you know when you start looking at the best in the world in anything, right? 
you have to master all four, but the one that's least worked on is the mental, right? So I actually say that the mental is the one that binds them all together, right? So obviously tactical is understanding, you know, where to hit it, how to take advantage of the course, where not to hit it. Technical is a swing and all the things biomechanically you have to learn and do. You know, physical, sleep, diet, exercise, the things that a lot of us don't care about. And I get it. I mean, the elite in the world are paying attention to all this. Um, but mental, has, does anybody ever wake up thinking, I'm going to mentally train my mind to be better for golf or for my job? We don't. And the fact is, we can. And and so the first part of that, though, is goal setting, right? And so it's, it's sitting down and writing down a goal. And here's the biggest thing I, I will tell you is that you always have to break it down into chunks. In SEAL Team, sometimes we had a goal that lasted 10 seconds. You know, move one inch. Think about that for a second, folks. Your body and your mind is pushed to such a limit that the thing that you have to accomplish is to move one inch. Well, set the goal. Figure out a way to do it. Do it, right? Then reset the goal. So I'm a big fan of what I call micro goals. So you have the the goal for the season, right? And then we break that down on how we're going to get there, you know, monthly, then maybe weekly. I always tell people, like, don't get burned out obsessed on one thing, meaning whether it's Monday, Wednesday, Friday, or maybe you can only do one day a week, whatever your practice time is. Set that goal for practice and go accomplish it. There's something to be said for our confidence and our own pride and want to when we accomplish things. Well, you set the agenda by making goals of what you want to accomplish. And as long as they're in line with your long goal, you look at these micro victories, which build up, right, and give you confidence in that. So that's that's the number one thing I would suggest for everybody. And I would do it every day. If you're going to go practice, you got to practice with a purpose. We all know this. But set your goal for the day. I mean, I set goals on the range, and I'm just Joe Amateur. But it's like five in a row to this flag, five in a row to that flag. And if I don't get five in a row, right, I have to have the discipline to start back over five in a row. And you know what? Some days I never I never make it beyond my my wedge, you know. But guess what? Like that was the goal and I worked really hard at it. And even though I might feel like a failure, did I get better that day? I sure as heck did. I got a lot better than if I would have, you know, not been able to hit my goal and moved on to this club and sprayed it over here, sprayed it over there. Because this is the other thing. And I know I'm not a golf teacher, but this should be pretty simple to everybody. You don't get better at golf by practicing bad swings and bad habits. It's the one sport that will kill you if you practice bad. Absolutely. Like, I tell that to people all the time, right? Like you can – if you go – I see it all the time on the driving range where it's like they're ingraining in these habits yes. that I know aren't going to work. Yes. Stop doing that. There's a yeah. professional at our club for a reason. Consult with him. Then work with the professional so you're practicing the right things. You're – you know, essentially you're making yourself worse Absolutely. Even these poor souls think they're making themselves better because they're quote-unquote practicing. So don't practice bad. Set right. your goals, accomplish them. If you can't accomplish the goal, get somebody that can help you accomplish the goal. Golf is a building block sport as anything is. Shooting is building blocks. 
But, I mean, I wouldn't be a good shooter if all I did was go out and continue to miss the target to the right, to the right, to the right. If I just kept ingraining that, you know, and if you don't like that example, then use the science example of 10,000 perfect reps to master something. Okay, so if you do 10,000 bad reps, you now have to do 20,000 to unlearn that. So golf is a sport where it's okay if you don't have it. Walk over to the putting, you know, putting green and and do putting and then come back to it. The best players I've always observed is, you know, if they get off, they're not going to sit there and ingrain bad things. And it can be very hard to do. I get it. But, yeah, goals and purposeful practice with building blocks to get where you want to go and know that if you can do it, when I talk about simplistic things and mastering the basics – over time, if you stick with it, you will see the results. What often happens is people get frustrated and kind of give up on it. But I will tell you this. If you post your goals, literally where you see them every day, science knows that you will increase the chance of accomplishing that 400%. I want you to think about that. Make realistic goals, post them you know, where you shave every morning and read them, and you have just increased your chances 400%. That's how the crazy the human mind is. What advice would you have for a lot of golfers where pressure changes the way you play, right? Where the butterflies yeah. get going and then stuff starts speeding up versus, you know, and in, in we all try to get there uh, mentally. And I've been, I played well under pressure and I've blown up under pressure. And I can tell when it's happening when stuff starts going fast versus staying in the moment and kind of letting it come to you. Yeah. How do you... How do you, what advice would you have for golfers when you start to get out of that comfort zone? Do you embrace the fact that these butterflies are here and that's what you're playing for? And it could even be in a, you know, $1 match in your local club. We're not talking necessarily, it's all what's, what's pressure to you, all things relative. Yeah. How, how would you tell people to, 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 to try to, uh, oh, embrace those moments or, you know, perform? at their best during those moments versus having the pressure get the best of them. Is there any advice you'd yeah. have on a lot of golfers getting to that one and it gets tough for especially amateur golfers who aren't used to pressure all the time? Yeah, so really, I mean, the, that scenario kind of um, leads into what we teach or, or the other three um, keystones of, of mental skills training, um, and that's self-talk, arousal control, which is kind of what you're specifically talking about, and then visualization. Um, all to help you prepare and deal with those situations, right? So goal setting, self-talk, arousal control, and visualization. So if we haven't practiced these skills, uh, they're not going to help us under pressure, right? So how do we practice them and how can they help in the situation you give? Okay, number one, everybody, because we're the human animal, gets butterflies, gets nervous, gets angry, gets overly happy, right? This is just the way we're wired. One of the things I want everybody to know when it comes to talk, when I say self-talk, I'm talking about the internal chatter that goes on in our brain. Science tells us that the human um, mind has about 50,000 thoughts a day. That's crazy. The first time I saw that uh, by my partner I was actually really happy because I was like, oh, my God, like I'm not I'm not the only crazy person on the planet. Like I had no idea that every our minds are very active. 
And what we say to ourselves is very, very important. And what we know from, you know, high performers to people that aren't is that as evolution would go on, we're wired about five to one to have negative to positive thoughts. And and that's mainly because as evolution would go, our mind is always not wanting to get us killed, right? We want to be ready if the tiger jumps to eat us. So we tend to perceive things in a negative way as a safety deal, right? To be ready to fight or flight. And that's not good in high performance. We need to flip that ratio, right, to what we see in high performers where about three to four to one, they think positive to their situations, right? And so we're already wired to think negatively, but we are in charge of our brain if we practice and we want to. And one of the best techniques you can use is self-talk. So we use, you know, positive reinforcement words, um, mantras, um, when we feel those butterflies or when we want to perform at our best to help level us and bring us more into that optimum state. Because the brain only functions really in, in, in three states, negative, right, positive, and then what you hear in sports, flow or the zone or that neutral mind, right? Most people should be familiar with those terms. But here's one thing I can tell you. Flow or neutral mind would be the most optimum. That would be the way we'd want to hit a golf ball or stroke a basketball. You cannot get into flow state in the brain scientifically from a negative state of mind. You have, you can get into it from a positive state of mind. Okay. So if we've literally lost our mind, we've also lost the ability to potentially perform our best right on a golf swing. So the things you described are the telltale signs that we're a little off. So often in golf, we hear about instead of don't hit it in the water, you know, hey, put a nice stroke on it out to the right, right? Any type of words. But here's what I'm going to tell people. You have to practice them and find what works for you because as individuals, it's like a fingerprint. If I just gave you a list of, you know, generic positive phrases, one, you'd go through feeling corny, you know, just saying it to your own brain, let alone if I asked you to say it out loud. Because if you were, if it still wasn't working, I would ask you to start saying it out loud. Because one thing we also know is that if you are external, which is hard in golf because it's an individual sport, but if you're external talking, you can't actually think negatively. Think about that for a second. When you're transmitting verbally as a human being, you, it shuts off your inner monologue. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It does. So we get away with that a lot in team sports because in team sports, you can be jacking your jaw and yelling and doing all this stuff. And you see it all the time in team sports. But you can't, you can't, you can't do, do that on golf, golf yeah, course, yeah, yeah. right? But you do have your caddy or you have your teammates. So, so self-talk becomes important and you have to practice it um, when you sense that's coming on and find what works for you. Um, arousal control. Okay. This gets into now I've got the butterflies. Actually, there's a lot of great easy ways we use in SEAL Team and sports guys use. Breathing's the number one. You've got to start a breathing practice to learn to do deep diaphragmatic breathing, right, where you actually 
I'm doing it right now. <laughs> you, deep breaths. Actually, yeah, deep breaths where you can pull on it. I use a method that was taught to me, which is combat breathing, which is, you know, four seconds in through the nose, hold it for four, out for four through my mouth, hold for four, and I count it. And I practiced this ever since it was taught to me. And I can't tell you in the little Jack Riggins, you know, golf matches, how many times I use that walking down the fairway when I'm pissed off at myself, right? And that's one of your first, um, you know, things that you can do when you start to fill that on is breathe. It's that simple. Take deep breaths, right? And if you practice, you can actually lower your heart rate and do this. But again, you know, we're all sitting there going, well, nothing's going to control me being pissed off. Actually, yeah, you can control that. And so, you know, this is one of the first skills in arousal control that's that important. The other one is, like you said, to acknowledge it, right? So, you know, while it, it might not be, you know, we don't all have a caddy, but we have ourselves or more than likely you're playing with some buddies, you know, just just get it off your chest, right? I mean, just, you know, yeah, I'm pissed off, you know? The other part when we get frustrated is it's okay to let it go. Like, you know, what is it? You have five minutes before the next shot. Like, you get frustrated. I'm not saying everybody should throw clubs or anything. But go ahead and get it out. And then at some point, okay, I'm done. Right? I'm moving on. Because golf is always about the next shot. Just like shooting in SEAL Team. is Nobody cares about the shot you just took. You can't get it back. So you've got to be able to move on. And so, you know, the process of basically focus, refocus, you have to get good at. And so a lot of people struggle with, well, I hit this bad shot and now I obsessively think about it. And then I go up to the next shot. I'm not prepared. I haven't refocused. But golf allows you inside those minutes between shots to do that. And so, you know, routine helps in arousal control as well, but it's okay to let yourself be frustrated. You just have to cut it off, right, and then move on. And so golf, you know, depending on how many strokes you take, you can look at it this way. Golf is a game of, you know, can I do 72 focus refocuses and grade out at 100%? And with the elite level golfers I work with, we, we don't work on anything, obviously, mechanically. We work on were you present refocused, focused for every shot. And you'd be surprised how hard that is, even at the most elite level, right? To grade myself simple, I get a one if I do it, and I get a zero if I don't. And it's amazing how many times we hit shots and we're not present for it. I'm always thinking about the anger thing and how Tiger does it, where it's just one quick, you know, yeah. smack of the wedge near the bag, it's yeah. over. And he's, you can tell he's cleared his mind and he's off to the next shot, but he yeah. gets it out. Yeah, you got to get it pissed. out. And he's pissed, but it doesn't carry over. I never see Woods have it carry over. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, he obviously he does a great job. Um, there are other players, right, that do a great job. And, again, it manifests itself different in everybody. But, you know, having a breathing practice, you know, understanding your, your physiology and, and being able to reset it is important. And I think on the golf course that's one of the best ways to do it. The other way is – you know, just change the subject. You know, you hear all these great stories about these guys, you know, Jack Nicholas humming, Freddie Couples talking about sports is just change the subject for that walk. 
you know, really get into the subject that you're talking with your bros about so you forget about it because it's over, right? The worst thing we can do is carry it to the next shot. And it's a very hard thing to do, um, but you can. And, you know, so self-talk and arousal control and some of these short little skills can really help. And then the last one is just visualization, which is, is twofold, right? Because we hear a lot about in golf of visualizing the shot. Well, I mean, we've done a disservice a little bit to, you know, four-hour rounds of golf because now, you know, people are people who don't practice visualization are standing around putts and shots. They have no business, you know, spending three minutes lining up going, well, I'm, I, I'm not going to hit it till I see it. <laughs> and you're like, oh, okay, hang on here. But this leads to confidence. What I want people to know is that we know through science that if you can deeply visualize or imagery, right, doing a mechanical body movement in your brain where muscle memory is formed, right, because it's in your brain, it's not actually in the muscle, your body brain responds seven times more to deep visualization imagery than it does to actually doing the mechanical action. Think about that for a second. So yes, what I am telling you is that when you go to bed at night, if you set a goal to visualize 10 perfect golf swings, yours, right? Or takeaways, you and then you get to three and you screw it up. You see yourself hack at it. Go back and start. You're practicing golf. And you're probably practicing at a level that, depending on where you're at in your golf swing, is actually more effective than being out there hitting it. So you're visualizing the skills that you want to improve on, right? You may need to visualize your routine because you're not a very good uh, at sticking with your routine, Right until you trust it, because ultimately this is all building to trust to where you're going to let the best version of yourself come out each swing. But I always tell people because they kind of laugh at that one. I mean, you want to try to be able to smell the grass. You want to try to be able to, you know, see, uh, hear. I mean, the more deep visualization you can get into, and again, practice it, I can help you because these are scientific facts. Right? It doesn't surprise any elite-level golfer because they're able to, for the most part, visualize a shot every time they hit one. Right, And then they're judging on how much did they actually execute that shot based on the visualization they were hitting. Um, but they've been practicing. Well, you can practice that sitting in your house, and you learn to trust it. But, I mean, think about the science behind that, and I'm telling you it works, but you've got to dedicate to it and work. Now we take that to the course, well, here we go, right? I mean, see it, feel it, do it, right? And But these take time. They're learned skills. Um, best special operators in the world use them. It's a core of our focus. I don't know any elite athlete that I've worked with that doesn't eventually embrace these things. And golf happens to be a sport that we can all apply it at any level. And quite frankly, it, it makes the game more enjoyable, um, and so you're actually using some of that downtime in between shots in what I call the focus refocus area, um, to work these skills every day and, and you can work them on the range. Um, and I, it's kind of one of those deals. It works if you work it. Um, it's not hocus pocus. Um, but 
they're also very simple. And I think a lot of us just feel like, well, that's just what the big boys do or, or whatever. Um, no, you, you can apply them right now. I mean, I help business people apply them to their job and business. I help uh, elite athletes apply them, coaches, um, golfers too. And it works. And so, yeah, I try to incorporate it into my game. Um, does it always work? Meaning for a guy that teaches it? Well, no, of course. I, I get my butt kicked like internally. Like I mess myself up sometimes. Um, but at the same time, it also um, gives me a lot of confidence, you know, in any type of endeavor that I'm trying to do. It's good to ask you, too, when you do work with PGA Tour players, um, what is the commonality that you see in them that makes them great? Because they're just great to get to that level. So they already have to have a skill set that's pretty damn good. But when you're working with them, is there a commonality that you see that the guys who even just you know make it there? And I know you've worked with guys who are multiple tour winners. I'm not going to say names, but what do they what do they have in common that you're you're impressed with as somebody who you know, does this for a living and works with these kind of uh, elite athletes. What skill sets do they have that you're even like, wow, these guys kind of have this already. Yes, I can help them, but they've got X. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, you know, what sticks out, and I I think it's such a boring answer, but it's the truth based on what I've observed. And and I have been very blessed to be around some, some elite level golfers and, and working with some, um, local guys now who, you know, are, are chasing it, we'll call it. Um, and again, I, I learned so much from everybody I work with in, in sports and business. It's a, it's, I always feel like it's this transmission of best practices, but the thing that I've always noticed and it's, it's across sport, but golfers are no different is this obsessive, pursuit of the basics and the same thing i said about seal team it's just a seal team we select for it in golf these guys select through it up through their you know lineage you know whether they got to q school all the way you know whether they play college golf or whatever you know corn ferry tour now is that it self-selects and so what you find is this obsessive pursuit of the basics and i mean Go all the way back to the stories we know about Hogan, right? Like, who stands on a range for that long? I mean, he already was the best ball striker of his era, yet not to himself. I mean, there was something he was trying to find and feel. And and so what I've respected about them is, in the mechanical part of it, mastering those things. Right. And, and being willing, you know, and maybe this is kind of a little bit along when I talk about the dark side. And, and this isn't a dark side. It's the cost of being great is being willing to put that much time in, because if you're going to, you're going to sacrifice time with family. You're going to sacrifice time with, um, you know, what hobbies you enjoy doing. And, you know, great show recently, uh, uh, Seve Ballesteros, and he talked about. You know, the price of, you know, when he was at the height, you know, I, he, you know, he said, I'd, I'd like to sit around here and be with my young boy, but, you know, I need to go out and chip. <laughs> and, right. you know, that's, that's the reality. If you want to be great at something, you're going to give up some things. So the willingness to put in the time, the willingness to have an obsessive pursuit of the basic, which makes the golf swing repetitive and at the most elite level. Now, if you can find that, because they've kind of all, 
whether it was self-willed to that or whether it was, you know, their entourages and the, the coaches, teachers, mentors in their life got them to that point. You know, once you're at that point, you have a great foundation of which, you know, if you need tweaks in other parts of the performance um, stool, you know, if they can apply, if they can find the help to now apply that pursuit towards another skill, they can usually get it pretty easily, right? And so I always tell people, like, with these mental skills, especially an elite-level athlete, listen, what it took to learn to master your basketball skill or your golf skill, all that time and effort, it takes nothing to master these skills if you'll put the time in, right? It, mm-hmm. it, it doesn't even compare. These skills can be mastered and taught so much faster than it takes to be a Navy SEAL than it takes to be an elite PGA Tour golfer. Yet, most of us don't come to them until way late in our career or later in life, when in fact, they're a really big performance enhancer to what we all do. And so that's what I've always respected um, about golfers is literally I've watched them dig it out of the dirt. And I, I get a little frustrated when I hear people think, oh, you know, they were just born that way. I'm like, you, you don't understand. Like, we just get to see the clips on, on TV. The work that goes in to being that great, heck, the work that goes into being a legitimate scratch golfer is tremendous. And it's admirable. Do you know what I mean? A thousand percent. Like when I've gone out in champions tour events for media stuff, and you think eh, at this point, you know how hard is Tommy Armour the third or David Tom still working at it? Eh, like twelve and a half hour day on a Tuesday. Yeah, still in their fifties, and they have nothing left to prove. Right. The commitment. Well, I'm, I'm watching these guys. I'm like, I'm just. I mean, I'm. It, it's inspiring to me. But I don't. You know, the work they still put in. Throughout the course of the whole day, you know, I left and they were still working. I was exhausted. I wasn't even swinging a golf club, just being out there 10 hours. Nope, they're still there. It's yeah. just this pursuit of excellence, right, that I'm always just blown away by of, like, they've just got that gear. Yeah, that, that just- pursuit of, again, that obsessive pursuit of the basics of their sport, their grind, to be great at it under pressure. And I, I use an example all the time um, for other sports – um, when younger people are talking to me about, you know, it's so hard, the time, the this, and I go, okay, you know, you're not happy with this part of your performance. And I'm like, I, I ran into a guy, you know, years back, you know, Grandpa Jack telling the story. And I said, really, I'm not going to cut you any slack on that until I see this from you. And they're like, what? I'm working hard. And I go, Working hard is watching a guy that's the number one player in the world in his sport spend eight hours working on the same thing until he had it to where he wanted it. I go, so that's the equivalent of you sitting in this gym for eight hours shooting free throws. That they're like, commitment, they're right? like, uh, that's crazy. I go, well, that's the best player in his craft on one thing. 
So I go, when you tell me you want to improve on this and I see that you work on it for 15 minutes prior to practice and then you hit the showers right after practice, I'm going, eh, 15 minutes. Eh. I mean, we're getting there. We're just getting there at a really, really, really slow pace. So there, again, you see that commonality of putting the time in and, again, purposeful practice. I mean – getting educated and bringing in coaches and teachers to help you improve in the area you need. And obviously today on the PGA tour and at all levels of golf, we do see more people around. Um, and I think there can be some haha that's funny from the old generation and new generation. But what I would say is that's just the evolution of sport. And these guys, and this is not just golf, they just have access to a lot of, other experts and they're being real smart by using them just because you have them there and you talk with them doesn't mean you're applying it meaning it may not work but you know who knows years ago if guys would have had access to it you know um again it's it's an individual fingerprint and there's nothing wrong with it it actually makes the game pretty cool and you get a lot more insights. And so, again, but on their own at some level, they mastered that that pursuit. And that's pretty common in all elite categories across the board. Well, I've got a few uh, quick hitters here for you. And then uh, appreciate your time, man. And uh, we'll get you back to uh, getting your recovery in. But uh, uh, whatever kind of comes to your mind on these, uh, i got four of them lined up here. So. I love San Diego. My wife went to college down there. Great food. Best burrito place in San Diego when you're out there. Where, If I'm going to San Diego, where do I got to go? Oh, okay. So on Orange Avenue in Coronado, California, all right, easy to find. It's the only road through Coronado, California. It's only open for lunch, and it is behind um, the coffee shop. I can't tell you what corner it is. But off on a side street, like right on Orange Avenue, there's a nice old diner and they open a window just from like 11 to 12 and there's a line of people. It's crazy. And you just throw in the burrito you want. I don't even think the place has a name. And the guy just puts them together and off you go. 11 to noon, Orange Avenue in Coronado behind a diner, which I'm having a hard time thinking of the diner's name. And it's that damn good. Like the burrito is that good. It's out of control. Gosh, I love their eleven to noon. It'll have it'll look like a stucco, uh, uh, stucco sand colored wall. It's just kind of like twelve steps down off the corner, kind of by our uh, Danny's Bar and Grill. Danny's has a good one too. And 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 frogmen out there are gonna be pissed off at me because I didn't say Danny's. Danny's is good too. But they're more about burgers. So if you want a burger, go to Danny's, same road, just two steps down the other way, and uh, Frogman Bar, and great burgers. But the best burrito, nondescript place, window, stainless steel, opens only for one hour, and order it, stand there, get it, and you are in heaven. If you're going to take three current players on the PGA Tour and go play a match, which three guys do you think would be fun, interesting to play with, and who is going to be your partner uh, as you guys go at it? Oh, wow. Wow. All right. Uh, 
Jeez, there's so many players that are so interesting. I know. In golf. And I'm thinking, like, who would make the match fun, too? Like, you got to have a great partner, but you got to have some dudes that would just be a blast to hang out with all day. Okay, maybe – I know we're running long on the podcast, but maybe could you help me here because maybe I need a little more insight. Do you know, like – I kind of have my three, but I want to know something. Do you know, like, right. who are some of the best crap talkers? I think like I Phil, know – Phil. Of course. Yeah. Tiger. Yeah. Kuchar. Oh, Kuchar is brutal from what I've heard. Like I walked funny, with Kuchar at, at TPC Sawgrass while he's practicing, and yeah, he I know he can talk. Okay. Um, gosh, great trash talkers. You wouldn't necessarily know this, but I've heard like if you can, I've heard VJ is hilarious and great. If 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 he can, like uh, he can dish it out and he's really funny. Yeah, and like he'll talk shit. Um, I know, I know that for a fact. So he's like you'd think of him as just always being quiet, but I heard like he's he can be hilarious in a he is hilarious in a match, and he can throw the needle at you. Gosh, who's some great trash talkers? I think I always think like Tiger and Phil, which you know, but you don't see it as much on TV like for their made events. But like if they're playing in a match, I heard it's relentless. Yeah, Kuchar's full. So those are the guys that like come to mind as just world class, you know, fun trash talkers that's just going to try to get into your head. All right, I'm, I'm trying to think of. Yeah, like that Fowler's Fowler's supposed to be the nicest guy in the world, right? Like the younger generation, like JT and Speeth. I've never met those guys, but I've heard they're like great dudes. Like they're just great, solid. Yeah, I mean, there's part work. of me that would like to have some of the younger generation, but I'm like kind of in the Phil Tiger age group and have seen their whole careers, and that's such an easy answer. And I guess it doesn't matter; it's my answer. But all right, here, here's what I go with, and I, I'm glad you said current because. Uh, I feel like if you said some of the seniors I know, if I didn't name them, they'd be all pissed off at me. <laughs> yeah, I gotta do, I'm gonna go. Yeah, we gotta narrow it. Right? But yeah, so, like, so yeah, current, 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 current PGA Tour okay. players. Yeah. All right, current PGA Tour players. I'm gonna say, I'm gonna say Phil Mickelson because I presented Phil Mickelson um, at a big Birdies for Brave event when uh, he, he helped the tour launch that. And that was kind of a highlight of my golf to get in my uniform and present that at Sawgrass to him. And and so I'd love to play with him um, because of that and his, his support, which they've all been great to veterans, but just that little personal thing. And then the fact that I know he's a world-class shit talker and I really like to chat when I play golf. I love it. Um, so that would be good. Um, I'm going to throw Sergio Garcia in there. Um, because, um, for whatever reason, you know how families think they're from somewhere, but then you take the genetic test and you're not from there. Um, for whatever reason, like my family has like thought we're from Spain or whatever. <laughs> I, I did the same thing. I, like our family was way off. I don't know who started telling these yeah. bullshit stories, but like I'm from Norway. I'm like, right. I look Mid-Eastern kind of like or yeah. Eastern black Russian sort yeah. of Romanian. And no, I'm like from Norway. I'm like, yeah. stories are all bullshit. Yeah, like, I do have the, I do have, I do have more Spanish in me than anything else. And then it's like right behind Italian and then it's a hodgepodge. So I guess there's some truth to that. And then some Irish too is I think the third one. Uh, but the point is I, I was kind of raised and everybody's like Spain. So with Seve being Seve, like that was always in our house. And so I've always kind of had that love of those players. Um, and that whole part of Europe. 
So I would want Garcia because, I mean, I have seen him strike the ball, and it, it is fascinating. Um, and I just – I don't know if he crap talks, but, like, I would like to get him in a crap talking match with me, Phil, especially because Phil could probably rib him, right, with all Phil's wins and everything. And I feel like we could help uh, Sergio cross the next level. Like, I'm not saying he's underperformed. I'm just saying I've seen the talent live. I he, He's a phenomenal golfer, but I'd like to have a Euro in there, and he'd be my Euro, and he's from Spain. And I also think that this one match could reignite his career. And I love the fact that David Duvall picks him for every single major because he does. I, that's his boy. Well, it's because of his ball strike. I mean, it's that's so good. He yeah. he he to me, and they all strike the ball well. So you know, this is just Joe Amateur saying it. But to me, he is like a modern day Hogan with ball striking. Like it is to behold. And when you see a ball striker, it's phenomenal. And and they all are. But Sergio has something. And I I just yeah, I'd add him into the group. Because well, I think that once he then, got done, because right? yeah, it's you and Phil. Now you got Sergio, who you could probably irritate and get him a little mad, which would be interesting. So then, right. do you have to put him with a calming effect? Like who's who are you going to put Sergio with to take the abuse you and Phil are throwing that way now? Right. So exactly. So I'm going to take Phil because San Diego Navy yeah. connections. We're going to go there. Uh, we're going to throw Garcia on the other side, and you know what I'm going to do? This is actually going to become more of the. Let's get Sergio healthy group opposed to Jack's dream group. We're going to put Tiger. We're going to put some love-hate on that team. And what we're going to do is we're going to goad them into finding a way to compete because we know they both like to compete. So Tiger won't like the fact that, okay, it's Phil on the other side and they're going to compete and they're going to jaw. And then I'll be the odd man out and I have special skills, so I'll get Sergio going. Because I'm just going to throw the American flag in his face, left and right, left and right. I'm going to talk more smack about the weakling Euros coming together for the Ryder Cup. And and I'm just going to give him America to get him fired up, right? And then all of a sudden, though, Tiger is going to have to be like, oh, damn. Like, I've got to keep my man going here, right? But then, you know, there's been some bad blood there. Because, as I always said, I mean, I think if Sergio Garcia would have never learned to speak English, he'd have won a lot more titles because he could have just played off the interviews and things. And mm-hmm. But nonetheless, the kid learned English. Um, and so, you know, I think it hurt his golf, but it is what it is. But then it would be this forcing function where their competitiveness would have to find a way to, you know, team up. And then they could then compete against us. Now, granted, I'd be getting 36 shots. Um, but that's all good. But I think we could get that going on. And then there'd be a lot of crosstalk, right? So I would love to go at Tiger, especially about all this Navy SEAL training stuff, um, because I did briefly meet him down there when he was doing that. Um, so I could I could get the behind the scenes talk with Tiger going. And yep. and we know he you know, we know they all support the military. Um, but yeah, we could get Tiger going with some Navy SEAL stuff, get inside of his head, and we know he'd give it back. Phil and him could do the golf thing. I could go at Sergio. Even though Tiger and him would be on the team, you know, Tiger would go at Sergio. You know that Phil would go at Sergio. And in the end of the day, Sergio comes out of this match with a freaking mindset that is killer. 
Why do I picture him getting really pissed off and like shooting sixty two on you? Well, that's Sergio, that there is. we go. I I picture him just being. Oh like, yeah, that's what's going to oh. happen. That's what's. I mean, it's going to be this awesome group, and it should be televised, and it should be. It should be on ESPN where you can say bad words. So maybe it has to be when these guys are later in their career and they can say those things. But it's just nothing's bleeped. And, yeah, that's what's going to happen is Garcia is just going to go low and he's going to take that tank full of gas that we've given him, kind of like Jordan. We've just goaded him into being great. And he's going to have a, you know, he's going to have like VJ. He's going to win a lot of tournaments and majors. I, I picture Sergio like not saying a word to you and just glaring at you and shooting thirty on the front side, as you're just like letting him have it, and he's just going to just get into that zone and just kick the shit out of you. Well, and I guarantee you, what the other thing he's going to do is like he'll talk to Tiger and they'll they'll team with they'll they'll be good for the match, right? Tiger will uh-huh. great support, but like he's going to start talking Spanish to us, and it's really going to piss me off. <laughs> and then I'm going to be like at the end, I'm be like, hey, Serge, I'm like. Bring that shit to the next tournament. You see this swag? See this anger? See this, like, you know, good Monday! Like, that's <laughs> that's what you got to bring, right? Every week, Every right? week. Like, not, like, woe is me. Like, let it come out, brother. Talents is there. I, I would watch that match. I could have let, so let many g- groups I would love to, but I'll take that one to start it because it would be so fun, and I would... Let's see. I, we'd have to pick uniforms too, and so Phil and I, I'm good with. We'll go like gray black for our combo because that's kind of Phil's color. Um, but we we we'd make we'd make Tiger and um, Sergio. They'd have to wear like a hybrid USA Ryder Cup uh, Ian Poulter outfit. That would. Well, I mean, Sergio did wear that canary yellow outfit once. Well, that, yeah. Open, so, but yeah. we couldn't just have Tiger in the black and the red. Like, we'd make no. Tiger. We'd make them the Kumbaya America European team. Golf courses on your list you haven't played yet. Is there one or two that's on the bucket list that you can't wait to get out there and go tackle? Uh, Dismal River. <laughs> well, that one's guaranteed. We got that one coming up. No, like, yeah, yeah. no, uh of course, you can come out to Dismal anytime you want to, but you know the Cypress Points of the world, or I mean, Dismal's a great golf course. Yeah. I'm wrong, and I think you're going to love it. But you know, is yeah. there any that's just is it Pine Valley? Is it Augusta? Where's one or two on your list yeah. that you're like, I want that? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, I think if I had to list them in order, um, I w- I would go St Andrews. Um, been there, just didn't get to play it. And so I would love to play that, the historical piece of all of that. Um, and then I would go um, Pebble Beach. I haven't played Pebble Beach. I've been up and in, in around the area. Um, part of that is because is I'm really fired up with the Peyton Manning's new show and the fact that like him and Tom Brady were chipping off Jim Nance's place, which is close to there. And I was like, yeah, I just – Somebody point me to Nance's place, and I'll just hit a driver. I, I just want to hit a ball off Nance's house like they did. Um, but Pebble Beach, and then, of course, I think Augusta. Um, I just want to see Augusta, and I think that dream's going to come true for me later in the year um, to see Monday. So everybody that I do know that has gone down there um, to see it, and I do know a few people that have played it, um, yeah, how can you not? But, you know, in the end of the day, 
that's such a hard question because there's just so many great golf layouts and different style of golf that it's almost it's almost uh, it's like infinity like <laughs> you know what yeah I mean? I mean yeah and that's why I always say like how do you, you know, what's the number one golf course in the world it's hard to say there's yeah. so many great ones but that's the pursuit of it's fun right just to get out there and see these different yeah. you know architectural gems it's part of the game that I love of traveling new areas assuming we could travel and whatnot and yeah you know going to discover these things and being like yes it was as great as you thought it would be or eh, it wasn't quite as good as great but not where I th- you know like it's always fun to go see these you know architectural gems and go to those areas and bring the sticks and you know go play them if you can so it's a great part of the game I absolutely love that segment of it myself without a doubt <clears throat> last one what would be more satisfying uh we already talked about food but this doesn't have to be a burrito a meal at your favorite restaurant in the world or beating danny woodhead mano a mano on the golf course in a match play <laughs> that's not even close the food, right? You're going with the food. I'm oh, talking like on, your favorite restaurant oh, anywhere in the world. You, there is honestly, you couldn't even, you said, Jack, you get to be a multi, you get all Tiger's money. I'd say, nope. No. Like beating Danny Woodhead, AKA the kid out of nowhere is so freaking fun that I, it's like any victory. Like I'm always looking for matches and, and I hate getting beat, but it happens. But beating Danny right now, uh, two years out of retirement, it just, he's just a newbie loving golf, learning golf, obsessed about it. Like I have been for a long time. Like, oh, that right now is the, the cherry on top of everything. And oh, by the way, for the listeners, just in case you know, prior to surgery, I did beat him as a cripple, so I'm very happy that I have the title of cripple. Then, not now anymore, beat him, and I get to hold that title until I'm healed up and we have another battle. Because it doesn't matter once we tee it up again. But until that point in time, I am the reigning DW Jack Riggins. Yeah, when I sent a message challenge champ because there, yeah, because there's no lack, there's no sport. So when I follow up, texted with you guys of. What happened? I didn't hear much from him. <laughs> it kind of took a few, hey, what's going And then it was just like an acknowledgement. And then DW just, there was nothing more. Well, I'll tell so you, I- DW would get smart. Like, here's what he has to do. Number one, I played a course, Pete Dye Design, Firethorn, that's, that's epic. It's a great course here in Nebraska, and it's hard. And as any of us who know study the architecture, like Dye courses are generally hard golf courses. And you get in your head. They do. They do. And yes, they are tricky. Yeah, so I get to play it every day and practice, and, you know, so my handicap travels real well. Most places it's like, oh, good, God, I have a flat lie for once. Um, what Danny needs to start doing, if you're listening to D-Dub, is you need to start bringing me to your place, you know, so it's like, you know, two-game series here, two-game series there, um, because part of that is, and I'll give him for the champion he is, you know, he's come down to my place. That does give me a little advantage. Um, and, and then maybe we find a third neutral site, but Dismal uh, river that'll work. That'll right. I mean, you guys potentially can both be there at the same time. Yeah. So that could be like the rubber match. I can be like the referee. Well, we'll I have a way in. Yeah. I mean, I've in, talked to my mental coach and my physio and my nutritionist. And I mean, that's what we're training for right now to get back, get these hips going 
and be ready for that uh, match. But uh, we play, we go around, there's a nice road around Omaha Lincoln, and we have a a good group of guys, uh, really good amateurs in this area um, that we play with, um, you know, summer state champs or former state champs. Um, a lot of former professional athletes who are retired, you know, young. And and we get to touch the local college kids around here too, which is fun. Um, so we do play some neutral sites. And, you know, Guchewski is here to keep us all in line, which is good, although he'll be returning back to the Corn Ferry soon. Um, but, yeah, we have a good time. I, I enjoy golf in Nebraska and what we have here. I'm very proud of it. And uh, the whole group of PGA guys here do a great job. Uh, the courses, you know, whether it's private or public, yeah, we have it pretty good. So lots of uh, nice sandboxes for Danny and I and the other guys to go scrub it up on. Well, thanks for the time, brother. I appreciate it. Um, I love the tips as we're all starting off this season a little bit later with the coronavirus and whatnot. But I, I love the idea of sort of, you know, you're working on the game physically and we can also work on the game mentally and uh, love the concepts and ideas that you had. So thanks for the time today and uh, look forward to talking to you soon, man. All right, Jason. Appreciate it. All right. Take care, brother.